From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Joining me to provide that entertainment, my two co-hosts, Giles Morgan. Giles, come in. Hello, Grant. How are you? Mate, I'm very, very well indeed. Very well indeed. And a man who's anything but a third wheel, the great and good Roger Mitchell. Hi, mate. Hi, Grant. How are you? Have you recovered? Very well. Nothing to recover from. I am in fine fettle, Rog. Fine, fine fettle. My back's a bit sore from walking up and down hills for a week. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, were you there all four days or was it just the first day that you were at Augusta? So I was very, very fortunate to score a ticket to the Masters this week, yes. And uh, so I went to the practice day on Wednesday and then the first three days of the tournament. I just, it, I, you know, I went into it thinking that watching on the, that final round on TV is the only way to go because there's so much that happens. And... Um, so being able to see the kind of ebbs and flows is just so important. Having been having been the first three days, I realised that if you were ever going to be at the course of the last day, this was it because the crowds were so thin, you could um, you could just get up to just about anything and anyone you wanted to see. It was uh, I have to say it was an extraordinary event. It's it's a magnificent place. I know Giles, you've been to uh, to the Masters before, so you know just how beautiful it is. But um, well, the thing that I've been wondering about, as a good groundsman would, is um, you know, I like my sandwiches, as you know, and I know you're always jealous about the sandwich fillings that I right, get. You can, you, can stop, you can stop the conversation right there. The answer's egg salad, and that's the end of it. No, no. <laughs> my question is, Augusta is famous for its cheese and pimento sandwich, but obviously with thinned crowds. Were they selling sandwiches this year? They were, but they are also famous for egg salad sandwiches, Charles, which are way better than the pimento cheese. So no, they they, they were selling. In, in top, like every... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In top Trump's land, it's clear that cheese and pimento completely no, trumps no, no, egg it's salad. It's not even close. It's not even oh, close. For goodness and, sake. And listen, I can prove it. I can prove it, and I'll tell you how I can prove it. Because I went to the sandwich, the concessions stores several times. <laughs> I was going to say during the week, but I'll say every day, and. Uh, and three times out of four, the egg salad was sold out. The pimento cheese, I could have picked one up any time. So I'm sorry, but there's just no, there's no discussion to be had here. That seems fair. Oh. Validation mm. there. Data point. Yeah, but it, yeah, you know. But, maybe uh, supply and demand. They maybe just made too many. I don't know. Anyway, well, anyway I'll well, go next what, year. <laughs> what I can tell you is it was a truly, truly extraordinary experience. I mean, I, I've been a few times before, fortunately, but this was... This was quite amazing, actually. I have to say, to to get that close to the players, at basically at will. You know, we would wander to one green and see players come into the green, and you know, six feet away, right up against the ropes, casually wander over to the next tee to watch them tee off and be able to get right up to the ropes. I mean, it was it was absolutely amazing. And but you know, again, it reminds me. It reminds me, Grant. You know, I think it is momentous. We've had quite an extraordinary weekend with with the Grand National as well. But this this win by um, Hideki reminds me a little bit of Linar winning in tennis in the, in the majors. I think it was the US Open or was it the Australian? I can't remember of what that did for, for tennis in China. And clearly golf in Japan has been a, a mega, a mega sport for a number of years I and mean, a number of years. And it's been right at the top as one of the most important sports. But if you look at the news coverage coming out of Tokyo today in Japan, of the win of Matsuyama is quite extraordinary to have uh, a Japanese winner um, winning at Augusta. I think we'll look back on this for some time. It was it was one hell of a performance, but uh, once again, a sport that's going to be catapulted um, into a, a kind of new realm because of of winner who's going to just um, open up the, the floodgates, I think. It's hard to imagine golf getting bigger in Japan, to be honest, because you know when I lived there 30, got almost 35 years ago, it was huge, and back then it was kind of Jumbo Ozaki who was the who was the big hope that Japan had, and um, you know he he could never quite do it on the on the major stage, even though he won just about every other tournament in on the Asian tour. It was extraordinary, 
But um, the Japanese were absolutely golf mad back then. So it'll be interesting to see if, if it does catapult golf into an even bigger realm, Giles, because it feels like this is just the kind of vindication they've been hoping for for so long. So I, I, obviously I hope it does. But um, with the, with the uh, Olympics coming up, um, I'm not sure who was saying it the weekend, but I heard someone say that Matsuyama's odds on to, to light the torch now and actually stop a bad call. <laughs> but, but Grant, can I ask you, like when you say you're really up close to them, and, and I'm sure even on the practice tees uh, on the Wednesday, um, are they playing the same game as us? Do you get a, a real idea that, of their... That, no. Well, give me a, tell me a little bit. I mean, how what? different is it? It's, it's 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 not even it's it, it's completely and utterly different i mean these guys can can do things with a golf ball that will make your hair stand on it i mean it, it's truly amazing i mean they get up there on on the tee and you know you stand there as a as a schlub like the rest of us and you look out there 18 is the perfect example we stood on the 18th tee and watched these guys hit balls on the 18th tee for a while and that shoot as you can see on tv is a very intimidating yep. shot and, you know, those bunkers are out there, you know, 300-odd yards to those bunkers now. I mean, the one that Sandy Lyle famously landed in back in 88. And half these guys are, are pulling out three-woods so they don't go into those bunkers, you know. And, and you watch them get up there and, and take the three-wood out. And the ones who take the driver, there's a very thin corridor down the right, as you look at it, down the right-hand side of the bunker. And they shape the ball into that tiny little space with the driver or they smash the three wood at it, um, and, and you can see there's no, there's no trepidation. They, what the difference is, Roger, they get up there and they decide what shot they're going to hit, right? And and every once in a while they don't get it right, but that's not a thought for them. They they get up and they say, okay, I need to hit a three hundred yard cut with a three wood here. So they just get the three wood out, visualize the shot, and then hit it. And every now and again, one of them gets it wrong, but it's. It's amazing, you know, around the greens, the, the the shots they play around the greens is unbelievable. The, it's it's just it's an incredible experience to to watch professional golfers play, and, and I've been fortunate enough to to have done that over the years. But to have this kind of access at Augusta was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Uh, and the greens, I mean, like it seems that, that it's like putting on glass. I mean, do you get that sensation about how quick and and slopey they are? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see the way that when the balls are hit into the green, you can see the way the places they roll and the places they stop and the, and the way these guys will, will aim putts at, at uh, and aim approaches even at ridges in the green that they know will funnel the ball down to the green. I mean, it's, it's a completely different game, Rog, a completely different game because they have control of the golf ball and they can hit it nine times out of ten precisely where they want to. And that, that makes it so much more fun to watch um, because you, you take the element of luck out of it. And when, when a good shot is played, it was exactly the shot that was intended, you know? Let, let, let me ask you one, one last question on this slightly more um, seriously. You know, the, there was the whole thing this week about uh, Georgia voting and everything like that. And I think the MLB decided to, to, to get rid of the All-Star game. Did you sense anything down there that there was a little bit of tension about, you know, you know that whole world about is the Masters, uh, has it finally decided it's going to be part of? Do you know what I mean? Did you sense anything no, at all there? Zero, zero. But, but look, it, it, nobody on the grounds has a phone. Right, you leave your phone outside when you go onto the ground. So when you walk through the gates, you are in a completely different world. You could you could be on another planet, frankly. It's peaceful. It's serene. It's 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 majestic, and everybody in there is focused on the golf. They're not distracted by you know phones big enough and texts and whatever. Everybody in there is absolutely f focused on the golf, and. You know, it's 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 an amazing of all the bubbles we've been in for the last year, all of us. This is the mo by far the most fun one to be in. I bet. But there's no the what the outside world just doesn't come past that gate, Roger. It really doesn't, and it, and it's it's wonderful to, to spend four days essentially without my phone has been perhaps the biggest blessing of all. Wow. So, Giles, tell us a little bit what's on your mind. Well. I'm always interested in rugby at the moment because we've got interest going on with the British Lions tour with 
challenges with coaches. Will it happen? I mean, they've announced that it's going to happen in Southampton, uh, Southampton, South Africa. Of course, Southampton would be a, a real <laughs> what a miserable one. tour that, that would be. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to be selected for that one. Um, so that's been that, that. That's kind of interesting to me. The Grand National in the UK won by a, a female jockey for the first ever time, and I think a lot. I think the viewing audiences for that will be colossal. Um, there's also something that's happened, which again I think an unsung hero, and I'm, this will be a very British point of view. But um, His Royal Highness Prince Philip died, and uh, over the weekend, which is obviously in the UK, is is big news. It's certainly big news. He was a huge patron of of sport, and I think he will be um, missed as as his valuable contribution. But I think what I'm really thinking about is and maybe this is a UK perspective, but I've been we, like, we're all locked down in our own countries. Is it feels like that lockdown is beginning to to ease here, and you're seeing sports beginning to look towards the new normal. And I think this is going to be a very interesting time is what is the new normal for sports? What is the spectator um, journey going to be? How are we going to do it? I got used to, for the first time, I've been getting used to watching sport without crowds in the stadium. And a bit like when you watch television and you see people not wearing masks in a drama, you go, hang on, you you should be wearing a mask. That that things are, things are um, there's a new norm coming. So I'm sort of pontificating a lot about what life might be like in a year's time because I don't think it's a return to normal. I think there's going to be, um, it'll feel different. There you are. I haven't answered the question, but, you know, I'm ruminating like a large cow. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's having seen the kind of footage from Australia and New Zealand with, you know, crowds back in stadiums, it, it just makes all the difference, Charles. I think you'll be surprised how quickly people flood back to stadiums as soon as as soon as they're allowed you know i really do the question is will they be allowed you know, the 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 crowds in augusta were significantly down on on normal but you still had that feel that you were in a crowd you know you were surrounded by people it was it wasn't rows and rows and rows of elevated grandstand seating um but you were in amongst people and Everybody wore a mask, even though it was outdoors. And even though Georgia basically ended the requirement to wear masks during the tournament statewide, everybody still wore a mask. I'm sure that was mainly because the, the tournament was televised and they wanted to kind of set an example, if you like. But um, it, it, you know, the the whole mask thing um, in that crowd, you could tell it 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 wasn't something that people were necessarily worried about. I, I think if you've attending, if you're attending a sporting event. By definition, you're probably not worried about getting COVID, right? Nobody who's worried about getting COVID is going to go to a stadium. Um, and from my experience in Georgia, there are plenty of people who aren't worried enough about COVID to stop for it to stop them going to sports events. Listen, the the other the, the 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 other big event this week that probably didn't get the attention of you guys because you're Mr. Traditionalists, both of you, is WrestleMania. WrestleMania came back uh, this week. Um, and I'd like to go on a little um, journey about uh, why I think perhaps this is the the most important story in the sports industry uh, in the last couple of months. Everybody and their dog now seems to be getting on the um, owned and operated first party data, um, streaming OTT uh, bandwagon. We on this podcast have been talking about this for a long, long time. It's one of Giles's key key areas of interest and, and mine also. And it was interesting to see that a lot of people kind of like understood finally what I think is 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 misunderstood still in sport. When you think about the media industry, the technology industry, the content industry, all of them are dominated by Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley capital, Silicon Valley thinking, the, the, the world of unit economics, the world of valuing businesses by the number of active users that you've got. When 
your industry is dominated by people that think like that, then it's obvious that you have to set your business out to be collecting that data because that's how you're being valued. And there was some chat this week about, oh, why are the football clubs not valued like Pinterest or or Airbnb or Uber or something like that? That's really been the basis for what um, Giles and I talk about with Pump Jack and, and, and everything like that. So it's great news that the industry is finally catching up. Until uh, Sport understands how people on Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley think, they will not really understand what business they're in, in my opinion. So isn't it interesting that the first mover in the OTT world, WWE, 14 years ago, they set up their owned and operated channel. This week, uh, they had WrestleMania that was on Peacock which is a streamer, sure, but uh, they have sold their their rights in the old-fashioned way to a broadcaster for an awful lot of money. Why are they doing that? Why are they all of a sudden saying, no, nah, we're going back to the old way? I, I, I just very coincidentally, I've got a friend who works in WWE and we had a catch-up. He, he's one of those magnificent Italians that live in London, like Fausto Zanaton, um he was uh, he was telling me a little i was saying to him well you know you've you why why have you guys done this it's the, the, he, and he came up with this wonderful phrase he said if we're in the beginnings of a streaming arms race isn't it great to be a weapons supplier i.e content is the weapon uh, yeah. we are not a technology company tell you what you know if they're going to offer us huge money because we can drive their platform penetration, um, we're going to take it. And I said, I get that. I get that huge. But what about the data? You know, you're, you're not going to get the, the direct data anymore. He says, well, if you look at our business plan and the touch points that we have with our customers across live events, licensing, merchandising, uh, the content studios, we are going to get it anyway. So what we've decided to do is just take the bid when the bid is unrefusable at that size and go back on to the old model. And I honestly think for all the reasons I've said, that is the most interesting thing of the weekend. And WrestleMania on Peacock gets my vote for all the wonderful things that happened over the last few days. And okay, so Roger, I'm really interested about that because as we we are talking a lot about the change to platform businesses. So do you think this is just to guarantee the money and is your, what you're saying is that they've got other data sources that continue to keep their value high, but this is a way of cashing in? Is that what's happening? And do you think that will be replicated? Yeah, uh, that's exactly what, what, what is happening. There is this wonderful trade-off between um, the value of the data and uh, somebody just putting a big check down. And they, again, maybe are the first movers to to recognize that you know, the premium, premium rights and, and whether you, you guys and the listeners like it or not, WWE is premium. They will have a, a choice to, to do this like they've done with Peacock. And they have uh, the data play with all their other wonderful, what would you call it, CRM uh, with uh, the, the, their customers and, and all the other touch points they have. So this is going to be, I think, the new way of framing the debate it's not, uh, you know, are we all going OTT? It's how are we able to assess the trade-off if we do get the bids from the the streamers? Because listen, it's always been the case. Nothing validates and confirms a platform's existence than premium sport. And Peacock want to go from zero to 100 real quick in their subscribers. And they've just gone and put down an enormously large check to WWE. And, and people really should study hard why that may mean that the playbook of just all everybody onto OTT is perhaps yesterday's news, even though it only seems to be caught the penny dropping for many people last week. Maybe it's already yesterday's news. And is there a part of this as well that, this is going to sound really naive, but we talk about the monetization potential that rights holders and sport have around the world that is money left on the table that they can still get through 
better data access, through knowing their fan better, all the things that we talk about ad nauseam. But is there a point as well where we're saying, look, sports, you can make more money, but not at all costs. There is a moment where you, you don't need to always be making money. You also need to be serving your business. And, and if someone comes in with a big check, which helps the business, that's also a good thing. Because you can't just look at it as a capitalist um, piece of growing business. You've also got to, to look at it as what it is, which is to serve fans. Or is that being very naive? I, I, I think that's very romantic. Um, uh, I, yeah, um, I agree. I am very romantic. Look at me. I'm wearing purple today. So are you actually wrote. Yes. Uh, so, but but the way I would I would rephrase it is this: um, the sports business is about it being able to play athletes multi-year contracts with certainty. That means that there is a premium on certain money, money up front, money you can touch. Um, the OTT business is uh, almost the complete opposite of that. It's um, there's got technological risk. There is risk about strategic marketing. There is a long-term play that probably pays off, but in the short term, you're probably going to get less money. So, you know, when you look at the the structure of, of any industry, sport is one that puts an enormous premium on the ability to pay players upfront and with certainty. And of course, and, and, and I know this, I, I, I tried to pull off a, an SPL television direct-to-consumer business 20 years ago. And, 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 uh, and, you know, the clubs, whilst 10 of them did vote for that, they were struggling with that because they said, how can we budget? How can we put players on three, four-year contracts? The answer to that these days is probably because big finance will be able to lay off your risk they will probably put that down up front and let you have the best of both worlds. So I think there is no playbook that's good and bad. There's none that uh, should be followed and ignored, but you need the ability every time, and this is where business intelligence comes in, you need the ability to make that decision and assess that trade-off, Giles. Yeah, Roger, it's interesting that the Sunday Times uh, in the UK a couple of weeks ago ran a, a fairly big um, supplement about the role of the chief intelligent officer in big business and how that they are in many ways um, su- su- surpassing the m- role of the, the marketing officer. I The intelligence gathering of consumers is what drives the insight to then drive the, drive the business. And I think that's what we're seeing is more and more investment within the sports industry, which is that the role of the CIO is there to collate and to pull together what is known about the consumer base and critically how you can affect and grow that consumer base. And I think all of the the, the talk that we have about OTT, about um, anything that is um, pulling together existing data knowledge um, into a tech stack, which is all very technical speak, but basically says is, do you know your consumer? Do you know your fan? And what we've seen, I think, in the media and the sports industry, and, and the retail industry laughs at the sports industry a bit because this penny dropped a long time ago. But it seems in the last two or three months that people are now beginning to talk much more about why data matters for the businesses as, as to, to develop the commercial side. And very interestingly, there's some of the older guard and, and Roger and I have laughed about this, some of the older guard in the sports industry are still um, railing against this word data and fan data and still des- and still desperate to say, well, it's about awareness. Well, it is partly. They, they're desperate to talk about logos and, and sponsors coming in with huge deals for this global fan base, all based on very, very little evidence. When actually the industry is, I think, really going into fast forward now of um, recreating its structure because the fan base is already there. You're not having to make up consumers. They exist. It's now how they're engaging. And again, what's so interesting and why I was talking a little bit about physical and virtual fans is we've all got used as fans, as we have as consumers, to be much more digitally um, engaged. We don't go to the shops at the moment. We go on Amazon. 
because that's what we have to do. A lot of our fan consumption in the last year has had to be done digitally. Now, of course, the bit that's missing is the bit that you're talking about, Grant, which is being out at the the course or the stadium. And we will go back to that. But a lot of the um, digital piece of engagement will remain with us, largely because it's easy to do. And of course, that will swell the data numbers and start swelling that sense of real scale. And for that CIO that we're talking about, and that department is the insight to both know what the consumer is doing and who they are, etc. And maybe much more personally, what they could be doing to, to grow revenue is going to be what we've talked about as a golden age for the sports and entertainment industry. And I think so in, if you look historically after Great Plague or War, there's often been an, in an acceleration in a kind of, like you talked about, the Renaissance, Roger, a few hundred years ago. Um, great creativity, great energy. It feels, and some of the markets I know are beginning to sort of predict a, a kind of bounce back, is that maybe this bounce back of sport will also be accelerated by this technological play which will see this golden age of sport, the next the, the next generation coming through. And that's what I think I'm most excited about. I've said it all, all along since I've been involved with Are You Not Entertained. It feels like there's a new dawn coming and it feels like it's close now. Maybe it's even started. Yeah, th- you know, this idea of data is something that we've we've been all over from the very beginnings of this podcast. And, and it was absolutely Roger that led that kind of charge. But it's certainly it is becoming more and more clear that 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 is the way forward and that is data is the new oil is the famous phrase that everyone seems to use these days and it's true but you know i I am interested roger in that in that um wrestlemania move because it just makes you wonder whether the big um major media companies and let's face it there are about five that own the entire media landscape when you when you look up and down the chart whether they are actually whether they have decided that it's time to to try and put the the netflixes etc on the back foot and maybe we get into you use the term arms race and it's absolutely right maybe these guys have very deep pockets and and more importantly can borrow billions at very very low cost um so it may be that this that sport is kind of the leading edge of a pushback by established media towards these kind of upstart companies like the Netflixes of the world that, that are, are, have really kind of screwed them a little bit in the last five, six years. Yeah, um, of course, Peacock is is, is part of uh, the Universal groups. NBC, yeah. 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 So um, I think people get confused between the business model and the, the delivery mechanism. You know, Peacock is still uh, over the top, um, yeah. but it's 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 not a thematic channel. It, it's it's old it's old cable, if you will, just delivered in a different way. Um, you know the interesting thing here is that again, <laughs> Hollywood versus art house, right? If you're in the Hollywood game, then I think you're going to have all these opportunities. Like I said, you'll be able to assess them. You'll be able to look at the trade off between uh, the big money up front and maybe uh, leaving some first party data um, on the table. If you're not Hollywood, I think you get in a world which I was reflecting on over the weekend, the world of the content glut. Uh, There's just too much stuff out there, too much stuff that's free. Everybody is like offering the fucking like Brazilian league. uh, You know, who cares? You know, am I ever going to watch Brazilian football? You know, I'm not because I've just got such huge choice. And, you know, I think that's the real challenge that, you know, for everybody that is not premium, they are going to be obliged to get into the different thinking. They will have to realize that they won't get the check up front. Best case, they'll get somebody like a peacock come along to them and say, look, well, we'll, let's do a a joint venture. Let's do a revenue share. We'll put you on the platform. We'll do some marketing together and you'll get a share. Forget the minimum guarantee. Forget what you're used to. You're in the entertainment business now. Entertainment business has got an element of entrepreneurial risk. You need to take that, Mr. Uh, British Athletics. Um, That, I think, is what's coming uh, very, very soon. 
and the Hollywood sports, of which there's maybe a handful, they, they will have the, the, the other version of that and they'll be able to assess it. So, you know, it's it's just the brutal polarization. That That's what we need to, we, we must keep talking about, you know, sport as this collective noun. It's, it's just not going to be that way. It's going to be Hollywood and commodity. And commodity, there is a content glut. And I think what's really interesting about that, and it's you're bang on the money with that, Rog, and what I think is interesting kind of from a sociological point of view is what are the sports, are the old sports going to remain the Hollywood sports, like obviously football, but anything else? Or are there going to be new sports that push into the into the new pantheon? And is that because of change of consumption habits and say, like take esports, will they eventually come into the into the pantheon and, and be bulletproof to be in that second model? And that the other sports, the smaller sports and individual sports will have to rely on different means. I just wonder if there's going to be changes to the guard. Um, because are, are some sports looking tight? I don't know the answer to this. It's something, golf's been interesting to me because it's had a good pandemic. Like they used to say, people had a good war. It seems <laughs> to be that during the, the, the pandemic that people played golf, that, that there's been a return, there's been a flight back to golf. I wonder if golf will maintain that position. And I hope it does. Does tennis, does, what are the sports that can, can call themselves? And is it the old events like the US, Mas the US um, Masters or whatever? Or is it new sports coming in? That, that I think will be well, interesting. Well, he, he, here's, here's something to chew over um, to answer that question. My answer is a positive one. Um, uh, there was a wonderful article from Andreessen, you know, one of the big VCs over the weekend that says all you really need to run a business these days is a thousand uh, passionate fans, basically saying that there is there is a business in every passionate niche. And that for me is the, 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 the answer uh, for sport. Uh, what will stop it getting there is what I said before. Sport as an economic business works on getting a lot of money up front that you can then used to pay players. So uh, when you don't do that and you have to kind of like, we'll pay you what we can, it depends on what the take up is, it depends how the sponsors react, how many subscribers we get, uh, it depends how much the betting people want to pay for us. Uh, and, and then, you know, you say to the player something like, we'll pay you 60% of that, but it won't all be up front and it won't all be guaranteed. That is the, the way I think it's going to go. And then you look at um, another article that, that, that I, I posted, actually. I noticed that it got amazing reaction on LinkedIn, which is the Kevin De Bruyne article about how he used data to go into Man City to renew his contract. Um, this is the way the world's going. The great thing about data is you don't need to guess anymore. Everything is verifiable. Everything has got an audit trail. Everything uh, can can be transpa transparent. So you can see it, you know, a player's going to a club and saying, look, this is what I, the value I give to you. Here's the data to back it up, back it up. pay me the following. It's going to be the same all the way through the system. And the positive news is that even a small sport, if you, if you agree with the recent article, uh, if it's got a small audience, but it's structured correctly, it's run correctly like any other business that you, you, you've, you've got um, shock absorbers for recession and the business cycle and everything like that, it'll be fine. The problem is it's coming from a position of the minimum guarantee and the minimum guarantee risks dragging down sport if we don't uh, cut it loose sooner rather than later. There's a thing that we're, we're kind of missing here and it's something that we've jokingly referred to in, in a previous podcast here and that if you think about the path sport has taken, sport has evolved over hundreds of years pre-TV, you go back to the history of football, there's no TV, and it's kind of been wrapped into the TV age. But if you follow the, the, the trajectory of TV, what's ultimately happened over the last, I guess, 20 years is TV has moved more and more and more towards reality programming, right? Because yes. it's much cheaper to produce. And so when I think about the future of sport, to me, it seems inevitable almost that we will reach a point where professional top-level sport for a lot of these providers becomes too expensive. 
And why wouldn't you go down the reality sport program? I mean, if you, th- you know, we jo- we joked on this podcast in in I think a goal on goal or maybe a grounds for a while back about a reality show set on um, Wanstead Flats of Sunday League teams, um, filled with characters, uh, relatable, a sport that everybody loves as the backdrop. It doesn't matter that the quality is high; you can create from the TV perspective really compelling programming filled with characters for essentially no cost. And so I suspect that is where sport programming is going to go. It's going to go down the reality route and, and make stars of regular people who just happen to be interesting, funny, amusing, polarizing, whatever it may be, people. Create stars out of them, Rog. Pay them, pay them nothing. Um, you, can, you can make Sunday League football look very glamorous with a few graphics and some good camera angles and some good editing. It's, it's really not that complicated. What do you think about that? Well, you're you're right, but listen. Let, let's just think about it. And this is where I really do struggle with some of the older the, the older people in the industry. What you just described is an element of the content and entertainment business, Grant. You know, if you're running the content and entertainment business, and again, I will suggest that these are financed by Silicon Valley mentality. Now, if you are running these businesses, you have to come up with a selection, a matrix of content that works for your audience and you try and match one to the other. So yes, the, the kind of like wreck some story, the reality, the, 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 the documentaries, the drive to survive, all of that has been shown to have a market, a product market fit, fit, if I can come back to use that phrase that I love. Top end, table tennis, will also have a product market fit. It will just need to find a business model that works. It's content that will maybe have a different business model. It probably will be subscription, probably more financed by a sponsor than others. Then you get, uh, as we said at the start, you know, the WWEs, uh, the Masters, the Premiership, the Grand National that will um, still be used to fuel Platform penetration and platform penetration these days is the streamers. It's the battle of the pluses, you know, Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, Discovery Plus. There it will work as the weapons in the arms race. The problem is, and my advice to everybody involved in sport is, don't be a commodity. Don't be a commodity because you will end up in neither of those buckets. You will just end up being nothing. Yeah, this is interesting to me. This whole landscape change we're talking about. If you're a rights holder, let's just say that you're a, you're part of a maybe an Olympic sport, global federation, and you're looking for advice of where to go. Maybe your handball, big in in Central Western Europe. In the old days, you, you'd seek advice from sports marketing agencies, as they were called. Where do you think people should now be looking for for that advice? To, to help them shape? Is it very much more in the consultancy business of the, the types like the Deloitte or whatever? Uh, really, because this is so seismic, where do you look for that mentorship to help you guide to the new dawn? Well, it's a great question, actually. I think anybody listening to, to what we've been saying will realise that it's all under the heading strategic marketing. I'm not talking about promo. I'm not talking about sponsorship agencies. I'm not talking about advertising agencies, media buyers, all these agencies that have uh, inhabited the sports ecosystem. None of them really, and I'm going to be very honest here, none of them have done strategic marketing. Strategic marketing is you start with who's your audience, what do they want, how are you going to get to them, how can you make a business out of that. Strategic marketing is a thing. So the answer to your question is, yeah, it's going to be more like a McKinsey. It's going to be more like a Deloitte. It's going to be more like, you know, a Portis or, or whatever, you know. But, you know, show me your strategic marketeers. The brands are full of this kind of stuff, you know, the sponsors. So what I think will ultimately happen is the brands will just come to uh, sports and say, listen, you don't really know what you're doing, do you? Let me do it for you. You know, I'll take over your sport and, and maybe we're going to end up back in the old days of, of, of why soap operas are called soap operas. They're financed by Procter & Gamble, you know, because these folks have got these strategic marketing skills and sport has got no idea. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Well, what else is on your radar this week, gents? Any other interesting stories? At, at, at the risk of um, not having a breath here, but what I want to pass over to you guys 
uh, is is the the classic one about social media abuse. You know, we saw a few clubs uh, making a statement saying we're coming off social media because it's getting outrageous. I think we saw um, Glasgow Rangers do that. Uh, I saw a couple of other people uh, doing it. We're getting to the stage now where people are saying enough is enough. And I'd I'd love to hear you guys, because you're more measured than me on this, about how we get through this problem, because it's becoming very, very big. Well, it's interesting, Roger, because this is this is the perfect litmus test. Because look, they're absolutely right, right? They are absolutely right. Social media is toxic; it's getting more toxic by the day. And for every kind of benefit I take from Twitter, the ratio of benefit to eye rolls and like, oh, Jesus, this is just so tiresome, is increasing by the day, which is concerning. But then you run into the cold hard fact of social media being the primary driver of revenues for a lot of these people and the way they communicate, all the stuff we're talking about. So at what point does your principle stand hurt your bottom line? And if you do decide to to nix your social media presence in this day and age, how do you contact, how do you connect with your consumers? Do, are you going to go back to traditional media with that as well, right? Is this part of a much bigger pivot back to the old ways where you 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 don't want to engage directly with all fans you want to only engage with your own fans because that seems to be the problem here right if you're if you're on social media you're engaging with all fans you're you're out there and anybody can listen it's very tough for uh, a premier league football club to block followers and decide who they want to let follow them who they don't want to let follow them so you you, you can only connect with the entire world and that creates problems which we've talked about in past episodes you know it's 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 a difficult one i, I think I've said in the past that um, I I don't I don't think of let's talk about football because that's where most of the the heat is coming from. I don't think of football fans better than they are. Again, let's not mess mix up the people with the medium of communication. Today, the medium of communication is the social platforms, and I would sustain that um, the abuse that you see on social platforms has always been there. We talked about this when the anchor, the female anchor at BT Sport and the Leeds United thing, and I said the same thing. Football fans abuse. It's what they do. It's what they do. So, you know, why do we want to throw that at the foot of the social media platforms? That's... Well, but Rog, simply because that abuse, if it's confined to the football environment, if it's confined to the stadium... Uh, on match days, and as you, as you told that story about the police chief, you know, saying we'd rather they're in here getting all the invective out and, and getting punchy than out on the streets, that's fine. But you can't, that's my point, you can't confine your social media presence to just your fans. If you could, and it's an ecosystem of its own, it's an echo chamber, it probably doesn't matter so much because you're going to create the same atmosphere on social media that you do at the grounds. But unless these guys go to closed channels and you have to sign up to be a supporter, to be on the platform, there's no way around it. Well, so then you say, well, what is the role of the the platforms to deal with a problem that is endemic to the people of the sport? Do they just shut down, you know? Or do they try and find ways to limit it? Now, I think I'm close enough to various people that work in these industries to know that, God, they're trying hard. Um, that would be my view. I think that I'm not in the camp that says, oh, they just sit back and let it happen and engagement is engagement and they don't care. I think they care a lot. I think it's at the very top of these um, organisations trying to solve it. It's in their interest to solve it. Um, anonymous accounts, it's easy to say, but it's not that easy to pull off, especially when you know you think about some of the developing areas of the world that is, is slightly different. I, I I just think, you know, again, maybe I'm wrong in this, Grant, because, you know, I, I have been the subject of this stuff, you know, when I was in the game and, you know, even when you, you're you're on, on, on your Twitter just now and you get um, flamed, you know, there's a button that's called mute. There's a button that's called block. Yeah, but Pete Rush, people today would much rather be outraged in the main, right? They'd much rather explain to the world why they're offended, why they're upset, and, and try and create something out of it than just go, Ugh, and block them. That's just the way of the world. I, see, I, 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 
again, listen, I'm a maybe a bad sample here, but you know, even in going back to your example of the stadia and, and you know, you were at a game and you know, some guy, even one of your own supporters, you know, didn't like your comment and, and gave you gave you a face full of like a torrent of abuse. You know, yeah, you, you either have a way of dealing with it or you don't. You know, if if we are saying that everything out there that's basically the equivalent of the playground needs to be prevented, then I don't know what the answer is because you can't prevent people slagging each other off. It's just the nature of humans. Well, yeah, yeah, but Rush, you can by not giving them a broad platform to do it in public. That that that's the point, right? It, yes, you can stop people slagging each other off via social media, which makes it all very public, and and for the most part. People will sit at home quite happily abusing everybody else from the anonymity of Twitter, but they wouldn't do it if they bumped into these people in the streets. You know, it's it's a it's a huge accelerant social media and the anonymity and the distance it provides to this thing. Grant, I have to say, I don't know the answer to that. My my summary. I don't would, know there is an answer. I don't know there is an answer. My summary would be, in theory, it should be easy to track them down and 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 if people want to to, to ban them and everything like that. I just believe that these organizations are full of very smart people. They are very aware that this is a, a clear and present risk to their future business. N nobody at Facebook or, or Twitter uh, wants this to become an issue and wants clubs ban you know, ban banning their, their, their activity for a month or a week. They do, then these are super smart people. If they haven't worked it out, it's me it means it's really tough to work out. I, I don't disagree, but there's the the degree to which they're super smart and the degree to which they're woke, for example, right? It, 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 you, you have to balance the two because, look, Google's tagline used to be, don't be evil, right? Do no evil, Where did that yeah. go? Do no evil, yeah. Where did that go along the way, right? That's gone. That's, that's officially gone now. And so you run into these, these hard choices. Do you choose the business approach or do you choose the approach that kind of benefits the social good? It's a very interesting question, and it's perhaps the big question that's overhanging all of the discussion we've had today, with the exception of the sandwiches. Well, and, it, and this conversation isn't confined to sport. It's confined to absolutely every part of the world, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and for sure. Listening, listening to you both, it, it's, I find it quite scary. I find it also quite depressing. Um, because you're talking about... We, we get that a lot, Roger and I, Giles. We get that a lot, people listening to us. It's depressing. Well, but it's scary that there, there isn't an obvious solution. As you say, fine brains will be thinking about it. But on one hand, this sort of universal approach to media has changed societies all over the world for the last 15, 20 years that we all now have a voice and a platform to voice. And yet human beings, what they are, a lot of what we say, you don't want to have voice because it's horrific. And it, it, for me, it's scary. I was really listening to you both properly then going, it's a monstrous task ahead because a regulated media back in the day that we all grew up with over over the time of the, the, the history of media was by by definition there was a control a control of the message sometimes good sometimes not at all good um, now there is no control um, and the message is sometimes good and sometimes not at all good but with no regulation and and that's a that's a big that's a big uh, sort of sociological anthropological moment in our in our species history actually because. It, it affects everything. It affects everything that we do, how we buy, how we travel, how we how we are influenced by anything, how wars are started, how conflicts are raised. Now, this channel of social media or channels of social media, whether it's confined to football hatred or whether it's to do with President Trump, as was all of that, it's, uh, it's this is this is mega stuff and quite depressing, but not either of you are depressing. In fact, what, you're a pleasure to be with. I, I think, Giles, what the digital age needs is its own Mary Whitehouse. This could be this could be your future. <laughs> I think you should set yourself up as a puritanical guardian of the social media age. I should love that. That would be great. That would be great. Yeah. No, it, it is. It is. It is a real conundrum. You know, um, the the historians in the future will will look back. Uh, to the launch of the iPhone is the moment that changed everything. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that. But today, you know, every time I, I'm around 
rights holders in sport and and you know we talk about the the strategy for the social media and and you know normally Giles I'm in the camp of you know forget those guys go down the owned and operated route that's where the first party data is that's my kind of default position and and you know smart people come to me and say yeah we get that but you know how much the oil tanker needs to turn around to get them off where they live today. And they live today on TikTok, on Twitch, et cetera, et cetera. The, the theme of the world today is go to where the people live and give them your message, whether it's politics, whether it's your product, whether it's the marketing of your sport, because they ain't leaving social media. I mean, Jesus, I mean, like Clubhouse, what was the valuation they got the other day? Four billion? I mean, my Lord, th th these are amazing valuations because this is the game. You know, where can you uh, accumulate a community and, and make it their, uh, their natural habitat and where they will be very unlikely to leave because all their mates are on there, all their connections are on there, the stickiness is to the nth degree. Um, honestly, the iPhone and jobs changed everything. And, and what we are talking about here, every so often it flares up, it's just going to get worse. There's, there's no obvious solution to this, guys. Well, look, I, I found a solution this week, Rog. Go to the Masters and leave your phone in the hotel. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. Trust me. That, that is the answer. Well, gentlemen, look, I can, the, the lunch hour is rapidly dwindling. Is there anything else uh, we want to talk about in the last few minutes before we have to get back to back to the middle? Um, no, uh, nothing I don't think we want to get into in any kind of detail. There was a lovely article in The Athletic about your mate Palotta, Grant, and how yes. he was kind of like um, revisiting what happened to him in Rome. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I did know a lot of that story because I live here, but um, what was what was interesting for me was uh, when he talked about multi-club strategies. You know, that's a big vogue just now that, that, you know, buy five or six clubs and, you know, have the synergies of blah, 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 blah. And he said, look, you know, every club's got its own culture and these cultures don't match and mix. And uh, he was not in favour of multi-club strategy. I found that a very good article and a very interesting one. But he's your mate. How did how did he come across to you, Grant? Uh, yeah, look, I, I agree. I, I had a drink with him in in Miami when I came to the States a couple of uh, six weeks or so ago. And um, yeah, he was relieved to be out of Roma, which was interesting bookend to his excitement he had when I had dinner with him as he was just in the process of buying it. Yeah, it's amazing, Rog, what was it, 10 years, I guess, that uh, he's been involved with Roma? Yeah. And it's it's definitely taken its toll. It's definitely taken its toll. And and Jim loves football. Uh, and I don't think the experience will have soured him on perhaps trying to be part of an ownership group or owning another football team somewhere in the world. But... Um, but certainly the Italian experience has been one that has uh, that has weighed heavily on him. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, well, well, it would be lovely to get him on the show once and we can really put him into the, as Giles likes to call it, the, the grilling that we, 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 we offer our guests. I think that would be great if you could get him on the show. Right, listen, I'm sure he'll do it. It's a question of finding, of pinning him down long enough to, to get him. But I will, I will do my very best to get him on the show and I'm, I'm sure he'll do it. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. Well, gents, Excellent. I guess time time to get back to work. As always, it's been a fun chat. Uh, all that remains is to thank the two of you for taking time out of your work to sit here and waffle with me. To thank the listeners for doing their part and listening to the show. Please do take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes if you get the chance. That really would be wonderful. You can follow us on social media. The aforementioned social media, if you don't already, you'll find us at Entertained R. That's A-R-E, the word. You can find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find me on my very non-inflammatory Twitter handle of at GilesMorgan71. <laughs> and you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Great.